0: Well, we are continuing again through our series in Nehemiah and, and we have been looking at Nehemiah as a man uh, who lived a life of extraordinary zeal for God's work uh, and we've been praying and I hope that you've been praying, I've been praying the elders have been praying that, that uh, this series would uh, contribute in some way to making us into a, a church, making us into a people with that same kind of zeal. uh, That we would remember the work that God has given us to do and that we would zealously apply ourselves to it. That we would be applying ourselves to it in prayer and in action and uh, in the face of opposition and ultimately as the overflow of grace that we have received from God's own heart. Uh, this week we, we come to what's at the very center of that work. Indeed, what is the very center of God's people. What I'm talking about is, is God's Word. The thing that is at the very center of God's work and at the very center of God's people, His, his Word. Now our, our aim is to cover chapters 6 through 8 which is a, uh, it's a, it's a tall order, uh, but most, mostly we're going to focus on chapter 8. So if you have your copy of the Bible in front of you, I'm going to invite you to open up uh, to chapters 6 through 8 in Nehemiah. If you don't have a Bible, there are some on the welcome table. You can feel free to grab one and use it. If you're looking for Nehemiah, hit the Psalms, flip backwards, Job, Esther, Nehemiah. Now, I'm going to ask you to do something that I don't normally ask you to do. And it will become clear, uh, I think, when I read the passage. Would you stand with me as I read the word? Uh, I'm not going to read all of chapter 6 and chapter 8. This will be really long and your legs will get tired. Uh, I'm going to read read all of chapter 8. I'm I'm going to read two verses from chapter... One from chapter 6, one from chapter 7. So chapter 6, verse 15 chapter 7 verse 73 and then all of eight so here we go starting in in verse 15 in chapter 6. so the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month elol in 52 days chapter 773 so the priests the levites the gatekeepers the singers some of the people the temple servants and all israel israel lived in their towns And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. Now starting in verse 1 of chapter 8. And all the people gathered as one, many into, as one man, into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattathiah, Shema, Aniah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Maasiah on his right hand, and Padaiah, Mishael... Malkijah, Hashem, Hashpadana, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hadiah, Maasiah, Kalida, Azira, Jozebad, Hanan, Paliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, be quiet. For this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra, the scribe, in order to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booze during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths, as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booze for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booze and lived in the booze, For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And there was very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. Would you pray with me? Lord, this is your word, and we pray that this word would be at the very center of of who and what we are as your people. It's your word that creates and makes your people. It's your word that sustains your people. And it's your word that preserves your people to glory. So Lord, I pray now that you would nourish these brothers and sisters, that they would indeed be sustained by the preaching of your word. And that in your word we would see Christ and that he would be honored. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. In 1823, Adoniram Judson had been a missionary in the Buddhist country of Burma for 10 years. Uh, He was a gifted linguist, and as soon as he got there, he began learning the Burmese language. Uh, After mastering the grammar, he he began working on a Burmese New Testament. That year, he traveled to the capital city of Burma, which was Ava to try and persuade the emperor to embrace a policy, a policy of religious toleration. And it turns out that he couldn't have picked a worse time. In 1823, he goes and uh, Burma becomes embroiled in a border dispute with Bengal, which was uh, controlled by Britain at the time. And so all Westerners were regarded as spies by the Burmese government. And so Judson, upon his arrival, is arrested and thrown into a prison that would make uh, the worst penitentiaries in this country seem like a five-star hotel. Now, his greatest concern in all this was this New Testament that he had been working on, that he had been translating into Burmese. If his house were raided, uh, which would not have been uncommon, And that New Testament work confiscated uh, much of the work that he was doing over the past 10 years would be destroyed and lost. And so Judson's wife, Anne, is gonna risk her life and his life by smuggling that New Testament into the prison in a dirty pillowcase. And for 17 months, the duration of Adoniram's stay in that prison, He sleeps on that pillow, and beneath his head is the singular copy, the one and only copy of the the Burmese New Testament. And he sleeps on it, the, the duration of his prison stay, protecting it with his very life. Why? Why? Because Adoniram Judson knew, in his own words, that the key to the conversion of the Burmese people was the word of God. The key to God's work going forward in Burma was the word of God. This was a man who by God's grace was filled with a zeal for God's word. And it's it's really that same zeal that we see here in Nehemiah, in Ezra, in the scribes and in the people. It's been 52 days since Nehemiah arrived and amazingly The wall is finished. You remember Nehemiah has been sent very providentially by God through King Artaxerxes to rebuild the wall. Nehemiah is pricked in his heart his people are in great trouble and shame. He comes to rebuild the wall, and 52 days later, despite opposition and obstacle, the wall has been finished. The gates have been repaired. And in a sense, Nehemiah's work is done. But here's the thing. Nehemiah knows that a rebuilt wall is is not really the end game. The wall is, is a means to an end. The reconstruction of the wall is just the beginning of the reconstruction of God's people. And Nehemiah also knows that at the very center of reconstructing or reconstituting God's people, if you will, is God's word. The key to the work was not ultimately bricks, but the Bible. That's the big idea today. At the center of God's people is always God's word. You hear what I'm saying? At the center of God's people is always God's word. If we would be a people who are zealous for God's work, that's what we're praying for, right? That we would be a people who are zealous for God's work, that we would apply ourselves to that work in the world. And if we would be that kind of people, at the center of who and what we are, must be God's word. Because it's ultimately his word that accomplishes his work. And really we see that truth demonstrated here in this passage, and in these three chapters, in three ways. We see a false word, we see a central word, and we see a good word. Three ways we're going to see that. We see a false word. We see a central word. We see a good word. Let's look first here at a false word. Chapter six begins with more opposition. That's where we've been. That's where we were last week. Opposition in chapter six sort of carries that through. There's more opposition. Sam Ballot and Tobiah are back. And as they see the wall nearing completion, their goal is to try again to derail the work. By intimidating Nehemiah. And if you have your Bibles, you can look there. Chapter 6, verse 2. It reads this way. Samballa and Tobiah sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at at Hekepharim in the plain of Anno. Anno, that, that plain was a day's journey away from Jerusalem and it was in the middle of nowhere. And Nehemiah knew it was to draw him out away from the work. And ultimately to harm him four times they sent for him and four times he refused to meet them and finally Sam sent him an open letter but basically you know typically they would seal the letter you know so you couldn't open it it would be like a little insignia sealed this is an open letter so that whoever wants to can read it and you'll see why and here's what the what the letter said so this is Sanballat writing a, a letter to Nehemiah says, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. In other words, he's writing a letter saying, hey, uh, you better stop or we're going to tattle on you to the king of Persia and you'll be in big trouble. But Nehemiah knows there's nothing to tattle. Right? He, he knows all their accusations are lies. They're, they're, they're false words. And Nehemiah responds, uh, no such thing as, as you say uh, has been done, for you are inventing them out of your mind. But why are they lying? Why are Nehemiah's enemies and God's people why are they lying? Because verse nine, they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. So so look, here, here's the first thing that we learn. The first thing we learn is that one of the main threats to God's work is deceit from outside the city. Lies, falsehood, defamation, slander. Brothers and sisters, y- y- you live in a time and you live in a place where there is now no social capital to be gained by becoming a Christian. Do you know what I mean when, when I say that social capital? You're not going to get ahead in life now because you're a Christian. You will be insulted and slandered when you stand for Christ. At some point, you will be called a bigot, narrow-minded, intolerant. You'll be called racist. You'll be called a homophobe. You'll be called an unsafe person. And these are the tactics of the enemy to frighten you and get your hands to drop from the work. When those insults come, we must respond as Nehemiah did. And I want you to see first what Nehemiah does not do. I want you to notice first what Nehemiah doesn't do. He doesn't get into a shouting match. He doesn't doesn't even really, he responds to them, but basically he just ignores them. You know, he doesn't post something nasty on social media. He doesn't doesn't go toe-to-toe with them. He doesn't even really vilify his enemies. Now listen, you, you need to, let me qualify this here. I'm not saying that there's not a time for us to contend for the faith. We absolutely must do that. We must contend for the faith. But Nehemiah sees what's happening here. right? Nehemiah sees that these lies that are being made about him are an attempt by his enemies to distract him from the work, to get him to, to lose focus and to not focus on the work that he's been called to do. So what does he do? He calls out to God to strengthen his hands. He asks God to give him strength so that he can keep grinding it out, so that he can keep working. And really what we see as this opposition mounts, we find what the source of his strength and confidence is. And and ultimately, you'll see it's God's word. So if you look in that next section in chapter six, you, you see this truth plays out in what's really the climax of Sambalat and Tobiah's uh, plot to discredit Nehemiah. The, the intimidating letter doesn't work. They send four times, and Nehemiah just says, You're, you guys are lying, leave me alone. When that doesn't work, we read next that Nehemiah is summoned to the house of Shemaiah, who is a priest, and, and he shares with him a prophecy. He says in verse 10, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. He goes into the house of a Jewish priest, and the Jewish priest issues a prophecy about Nehemiah. There are people coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you tonight. Come with me. We'll go into the temple together, we'll lock the doors, no one else can get into the temple, and there you'll be safe. Sounds good. Sounds like is a nice guy, looking out for Nehemiah. And Nehemiah discerns that Shemaiah was not really sent by God, and it turns out that he was nothing more than a puppet in the hands of Sa- Sanballat and Tobiah. You read that he was hired by them. He's just, he's just a hired hand. And, and, and how will Nehemiah be discredited here? See, Nehemiah knows that for him to go into the temple, to go into the holy place, is against God's law. It's against God's word. Look at Nehemiah's response in verse 11. Verse 11. He says, uh, first of all, he says, "...should such a man as I run away?" He's saying, should I shrink back from the work God has called me to? Should I play the coward? But but then look what he says next. He says, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live, I will not go in. So a priest prophesying, saying, let's go to the temple, you'll be saved. And he says, no. Should a man such as I go into the temple and live, I will not go in. Why is Nehemiah saying that? He's saying that because he knows God's word. He knows the Torah. He knows God's law. You see, here's what's happening. Nehemiah knows Shemaiah. He's asking him to do something that goes against God's law, against God's word. And that's how he knows he's a false prophet. A prophet, uh, you know, in the Old Testament, a prophet is someone who speaks the very word of God. But here, Shemaiah, we find, is a false prophet. He's telling Nehemiah to disregard and disobey the word of God. You might remember from our study in Leviticus. If you were around for that study, do you remember these names, Nadab and Abihu? Do you remember what happens to them? What happens to Nadab and Abihu? They go into the temple unauthorized. And what happens? They get roasted. The Lord consumes them with fire. Nehemiah knows the story, he knows the word. We read in Numbers 18.7, again, the Pentateuch, the Torah. These are words that Nehemiah would have known. Numbers 18.7, we read about the duties of the priests. And it is reiterated that it is the Levites who have been graciously given the priesthood and only they are permitted to go into the temple. No outsiders can come in lest they face death. So you see why Nehemiah says, and what man such as I? He's not a Levite could go into the temple and live. And apparently, this is not even an isolated instance. Because in verse 14, Nehemiah praised to God that he would punish Sanballat and Tobiah and also the prophetess, Noadiah and the rest of the prophets that wanted to make me afraid. So there are multiple claiming. Listen, there are multiple people claiming to be prophets of God coming to Nehemiah And they're trying to harm him and discredit him and he has to resist them and how will he do it? How will he resist the false words? How will he resist the slander? How will he resist the lies? By standing on God's word. By standing on God's word. If God's work is going to move forward in the church, it's going to be because we are standing squarely on the word of God and you can rest assured that those lies will come in, that there will be slander, that there will be insults. And we could be tempted just to allow our hands to drop from the work, but the work will move forward when we, the church, stand on God's word, when we rely, when we look to the word as our authority and our sustenance and our confidence. As we commit ourselves to proclaiming the gospel and living as the people of God in a world that is living in rebellion against him, opposition will come with the goal of getting us to drift away from the word, to compromise a little here or a little there. What the world needs, what what the lost need is for us to stand confidently and resolutely upon the word of God proclaiming its truth in love but we are as the apostle Paul would say when the apostle Paul talks about the church the local church he says this he says you are the church of the living god a pillar and buttress of truth in other words the church is the pedestal on which god shows off his word to the world brothers and sisters Do you have a zeal for God's Word? You know, one of the things that I am so regularly encouraged by is that while I think we, we we always have room to grow in our zeal for God's Word and our love for God's Word, one of the things that I love about this church the most is that it takes seriously the Word of God, that it cares deeply, that you care deeply to know about what the word of God says. The first thing uh, we see here are these false words coming against Nehemiah and that he is only able to stand up underneath the lies by standing on God's word. And because he does, because he stands on God's word, we read in verse 15 that the wall wasn't deep finished. He he wasn't distracted. He, he, He wasn't ensnared in some kind of uh, trap that would discredit him but the wall is finished but as I said Nehemi- Nehemiah knows the end game is not just a rebuilt wall but a rebuilt people and so we see first a false word but now I want you, what I want you to see is a central word, a central word that as soon as the wall is finished the emphasis turns to the people as soon as the wall is finished, immediately the emphasis turns to the people. In, in chapter 7, verse five, 5, Nehemiah says, Then my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the, uh, the people to be enrolled in genealogy. Essentially, the question now is, how do we repopulate the city? Right, The walls have been built. And praise God, the walls built their security. And now the question is, how do we actually repopulate the city? Some were living in the city, but most were living in the countryside because of the city's condition. But now that the wall is rebuilt, it's time to resettle the city with people. But then, of course, the question is, well, who? Like, who gets to come into the city? Who gets to own a house and live in a house and have property in the city? Uh, genealogy was, of course, very important to the Jews. And really, it's a kindness of God that Nehemiah happens upon a book of genealogy that he could use to track back the ancestral lines, to see who were the people, who were the families that were living in the city. And now if you have your your, your Bible open at chapter 7, I'm sure it would be really entertaining for you to to, to listen to me try and pronounce all of those names. I had a hard enough time in chapter 6. So let me just summarize chapter 7. I'm not not encouraging you to pass over God's word, but for the sake of time, let me summarize chapter 7. The settling of the people in Israel, it goes well. It goes good. They they settle. They they wind up in the city. You see uh, new people come in and they populate Jerusalem, and they are enrolled and recorded by ancestry, and you'll see repeated there like the sons of, the sons of, the sons of. They're enrolled by city. You see, the the men of Bethlehem, the men of Ai, the men of all these cities, they're enrolled by their roles in the city. You see, uh, then there were the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the temple servants and the singers. And a process is even set out for those who claimed ancestry but had no documentation. And towards the end of chapter seven, we get this summary statement. The whole assembly together was 42,360 besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,377. Very specific. Now, if you're someone that thinks the Bible is just like a collection of myths or fables, it's like, like they just got like straight up records up in this book. Like 7,377 on the nose. And what is recorded is a tremendous influx of wealth into the city. Livestock, gold, silver, priestly garments, And chapter 7 concludes with what I read at the beginning. Chapter 73. Or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 73. So the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants and all Israel, Israel lived in their towns. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. The people were settled. The city was settled. And now I want you to like, sometimes we forget when we're reading, like, history, that this really happened, that these were real people. So try and put yourself there for a minute, okay? The the wall has been rebuilt, and imagine, like, the excitement. Imagine, like, the hustle and bustle. Imagine people, like, bringing their things in and resettling the city, And markets are beginning to, you know, uh, surge with life. And there's people in the streets and people are moving things into home and and rebuilding homes. There's excitement in the air. People are moving their stuff in. There's tons to do. But look what immediately follows this homecoming. Look what immediately follows this statement. That the people of Israel were settled in their towns. Chapter 8, verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra, they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. You see, at at the very center of this people was the word of God. At the very center of this people being reconstituted and remade, was the word of God, by God's command. So you go back in the Old Testament and all the the stories of God's redemption, right? By God's command, this people was created and formed and delivered and sustained and now brought back to Jerusalem. And now rightly, the very first thing they do is they gather together in the square and they call out to Ezra, the scribe and the priest, and they say, read to us from the book of the law. Read to us from the word of God. Tell us what God commands us. We need to hear God speak to us. Read to us from the word. And here's what I'm trying to say. Nehemiah committed himself to rebuilding the wall, but the bricks were not the final end game. The end game was the people of God Centered on the word of God for the glory of God. God's people are always centered on God's word. Earlier in the year, we walked through um, Acts chapter 2. You remember the beginning of the year we did that little series? Uh, I think I called it Devoted. What are we going to devote ourselves to as a church? And that very first verse in Acts chapter 2, 42, you probably, some of it probably know, know it by memory. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. At the very foundational level, what the church uh, devoted themselves to on day one was the word, was fellowship, was breaking bread ultimately in the Lord's Supper and prayer. And look, do, do you see? It's exactly what we have here. It's the same thing. There's nothing new. This is what God's people have been doing from the beginning, there they are in the city, and they come together as one in fellowship to do what? To sit themselves under the word of God. And if you actually keep reading in the section, I'd encourage you to go back and read chapter 8. What you'll see them doing, you'll see them feasting and eating, and you'll see them praying, bowing their head before their Lord. It's what God's people do. It's always at the center of God's people. Devoted to the word of God. Devoted to gathering together under the word. Devoted to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that's why in our Sunday gathering, right when we gather here on Sunday, if we center our time on the word, there's lots of things to do. Right? There's, there's lots of things that, that Christians can do. But when we gather here together on Sunday, our time is focused on God's Word. And so the call to worship is from God's Word. The songs we sing are truths of God from His Word set to music. The prayers we pray are informed by God's Word. We read from God's Word. We are assured of God's pardon by God's Word. We recite from confessions and creeds, which are summaries of God's word. We sit under the preaching of God's word. We're sent out with a benediction that is from God's word. We obey God's word in the practice of the Lord's Supper. Why? Why, why, why is that? Where else can we go, Lord? You have the words of eternal life. That's why. and really the people here show us precisely what it looks like to have lives centered on the word of god. So I'm going to give I'm going to give you just five here very briefly. Five characteristic descriptions of what it looks like to live lives centered on the word of god that we see here in this people. So first if you're reading through chapter 8 what we what we find is that they are eager. They are eager to hear god's word. Notice it's not, and I sort of highlighted this. Notice it's not even Ezra. It's not like Ezra, when all this happens, is like, okay, everybody, you know, loudspeaker, gather up, people of God. I, I'm going to uh, get you all in one space and then, and then I'm going to read the law to you. It's not even Ezra, right? The people gather and they're the ones that call out to Ezra. They're like, yo, Ezra, bring the book of the law and read it to us. So the people are eager to hear God's word. Now listen, br- brothers and sisters, I know I know that in the hustle and bustle of life, there's there's lots of stuff that we can give ourselves to on a Sunday morning or on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. There are a lot of things we can give ourselves to, but there is nothing. Watch the word. Listen, listen to the words that come out of my mouth. There is nothing that you need more in your life from day to day, week by week, month by month, year by year, than to hear God speak to you in his word. I know there's lots of things that we can give ourselves to on a Sunday morning or a Tuesday night. But are you eager to hear God's word? Are you eager to come on a Sunday, to come on a Tuesday, on a Wednesday night? Not not because you feel some sense of duty to go, but because you know that it's a, 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 what a necessity, what a grace of God it is that you would be able to gather with his people and sit under the word of God. Like just, who are, really, really, seriously, who are we that God should speak to us? We're nobody, but God invites us in week by week, day by day, to come and hear him speak in his word. Is there an eagerness to hear God's word? Number two, they were attentive to God's word. They were attentive to God's word. Verse three, it says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In verse eight, it says, they read from the book of the law of God clearly and gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Right To be centered on the Word of God is to give ourselves to the study of it, to, to really understand it, that attention would be given to, commuting, uh, to communicating its meaning as clearly as possible, and that those hearing would give attention to the teaching of it and to understanding. And listen, don't, don't please do not hear any judgment coming from. I know it's hard sometimes. Our kids are actually being really, really good today. I know it's hard sometimes to be in the service and you got kids and they're just like, you know, they're going all over the place and it's hard to it's hard to dial in. It's hard to focus in. I know, but believe me, like you see, we know, we know all about it. But I'm asking: is is there a genuine concern to understand God's word day by day and week by week? And I I, I I've already encouraged you, but but let me encourage you again. I am so thankful. And so encouraged by this body that there is a genuine desire to know and understand God's word. I hear about the conversations that are unfolding in life group. And people saying, we want to know. We want to think about this doctrine. We want to think about this passage. We want to be in the word of God. Let's never drift from that. And let's grow in that. Number three, they revered God's word. So so they uh, were eager to hear God's word. They were attentive to God's word. Number three, they revered God's word. Verse five says, and as he, Ezra, opened the book in the sight of all the people, all the people stood. Now you see why, how'd you stand? But why did they stand? Because this wasn't just any old book, right? Ezra was not just breaking out some piece of literature to entertain the people with. He was breaking out the word of God. This was the book that contained the very speech, the very words of God. And this is why we center our lives on this book. This is why we build our entire lives around this book. Because there is no other piece of literature. There are many, many pieces of uh, beautiful pieces of literature and writing in the world. But there is nothing else in the world that can claim what this book claims. That it is breathed out by God. That it is God's very word. And so we revere it. For what it is. 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture breathed out by God. I don't, I don't know that we'll stand every time the scripture is read. Maybe we will. Maybe that will be like our new thing. To revere the word of God. To a physical expression of revering the word of God. But we would be. Uh, we would do well to remember that what you are holding in your hand right now. If you were to put all of the, the value of the world's wealth from every age of human history, if you were to put all of that on one side of the scale and you were to put this book on the other side of that scale, this side of the scale would go through the floor because of how valuable this book is. You, and you, you see that in Iron Judson, right, clinging to the New Testament in Burmese while he sits in a dirt prison cell. Why? Why offer the word of God? Because it's so valuable, so precious. It's God's very word to us. They they were eager, they were attentive, they revered God's word. Number four, they humbled themselves under God's word. Did did, did you notice when we read that a wooden platform was made for Ezra to stand upon it when he read from the book of the law? Not because Ezra was special, but because the word he was reading this special, Because the word is above all of us. And the only proper response to the word of God is to do what the people do. And verse six says, and they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The only appropriate response to the voice of God and his word is to humbly listen. Is to humbly listen. And, and you see like in the end, It does not really matter what you say, what your friends say, what your boss says, what the world says. In the end, it only matters what God says. And so we gather as God's people, and this book is over us. We acknowledge this book is over. We are humbled under this book. This book calls the shots. They humble themselves under God's word, And lastly, verse 5, we see that they obeyed God's word. Towards the end of chapter 8, we find that the, the family heads, the priests, and the Levites essentially rediscover God's command to celebrate the Feast of Trumpets and the Feast of Booze in the seventh month. And uh, that's why it's significant. Like in the little part, you, you learn that, that they were gathered in their towns in the seventh month. Because in the seventh month, it was time to obey the feast that God had prescribed for his people in his word. And they did. They went in, they studied, and they're like, we're reading, they're rediscovering the word, and they're like, it's the seventh month, and God commands in the seventh month that we uh, practice and celebrate this feast. And so let's do it. And so they do. You see, in the end, the real mark, don't miss this point, in the end, the real mark that you have centered your life around the Word of God is that you obey it, right? It's not how much you understand it or how much you can teach it. We should give ourselves to those things. I'm not saying understanding and teaching it. We must give ourselves to understanding and teaching the Word of God. But there are lots of people that can explain the Bible, but their spiritual life is a mess. You see, in the end, it's how much you have been shaped by the word. How much God's word has actually become a controlling reality in your life. How much God's voice has become the dominant, primary, controlling voice in your life. But, here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can know everything I just said. You can embrace it. You can intellectually assent to it at some level and still not live as someone who is zealous for God's word. You see, the only way, the only way that you will ever really come to God's word eagerly and attentively and reverently and humbly and obediently is when you hear it as a good word. Is when you hear it as a good word and it is an exceedingly good word i've showed you some false words and now this central word but what i want to leave you with is what a good word it is that's the thing when you see it as a good word then you will be eager and attentive humble and reverent and obedient it's a good word did you notice in in verse 9 Nehemiah, Ezra, and the Levites, who were teaching the people the word, they say to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Isn't that interesting? You know, they've come, the walls are built, they're gathered there, they read the law, and the people are hearing the law being read, and they're weeping. They're mourning, they're grieving. The picture that's being painted is that as the law is read, the people are filled with grief and sorrow. And what's happening is they are being cut to the heart. They're seeing in the word their sin. They're seeing in the word their failure. Did you you catch that they have not obeyed? They have not practiced this feast since the days of Joshua. They have been negligent. They have failed to obey the commands of God. And so they see their own sin and they are grieved by it. But the leaders come to them, they say, don't grieve. They're not, and listen, the leaders are not saying, don't be grieved over your sin. They're saying today, don't grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. At, at one point, they literally say to the people, and you again, try and imagine this. They're all gathered there, and the people are reading the word, and they're weeping, and they're crying. And at one point, the leaders are like, be quiet. They're like, stop. Be quiet. This day is holy. Do not be grieved. They say, go home and feast. Go home and feast. Rejoice. Eat good food. Drink good wine. Make sure everyone has something and can join in the joy of this day. And then verse 12 says, so all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Now, what do you make of that? What is happening Here's what happened. The word cut them. The word wounded them. It showed them their sin before God. You know, the author of Hebrews says the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. What do swords do, by the way? They cut. It's a two-edged sword. It cuts, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And if we would be zealous for God's word, we need to be prepared for the word, to God, the word of God to expose us and to, in a sense, wound us. Right? If, you, if you really give yourself to the faithful understanding and application of the word in your life, the God's word will slice you and dice you. you. I mean, if you have... Did someone say amen to that? Does someone know what I'm talking about? The word, it will slice you and dice you. But to really know God, Listen, brothers and sisters, to really know God and to know God speaking to you is to know that whenever he speaks to his people, he never speaks to them just to wound them. He speaks, he wounds them, he cuts them so that he might bring deeper healing. So that he might bind them up. So that he might give them greater comfort in him. Like a doctor making a a surgical incision to save a patient's Life. And that's what the leaders are saying. They're saying, yes, we have failed. We have fallen short. But that same word, the same word that Ezra just read, the book of the law, that same word that wounds us, it binds us up. It speaks to us of redemption. It speaks to us of hope. It speaks to us of God's grace. It speaks to us of his mercy. It speaks to us of atonement. That same word that would condemn us by our own works, speaks to us a good word of God's redemption and of God's grace. And, and look, here's the thing. On this day, they are living proof of it. On this day, they are living proof. Just, I know I keep asking you this. This is like imagination day. Um, just imagine being there. Imagine you're Nehemiah and you're Ezra and you're the Levites. You, you have to be looking around going, how did we get here? What are we doing here? 52 days ago, where are we? 52 days ago, the city is in ruins. The walls are battered. The gates are all broken down. Do you remember, what is the report that comes to Nehemiah? Do you remember the report that comes to Nehemiah? The people are in great trouble and shame. The walls are broken. The gates are burned. The people are in great trouble and shame. And now here they are. 52 days after Nehemiah has arrived, the walls are built. The gates are in place. There's gatekeepers, there's singers, there's guards, there's priests. And now God's people are gathered in the public square, sitting under God's word being read, rejoicing, weeping over the sin, rejoicing together, feasting. And you've got to be Ezra and Nehemiah going, how did we get here? How did we get here? It's just God's grace. It's God's grace that a month and a half ago we were ruined, but now by his work, by his power, by his word, he has remade his people. And here they are rejoicing under the word of God. And brothers and sisters, can you just take a moment? Can you just take a moment and look around and ask yourselves, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? How did we get here? I know my own story, and I know many of your own stories. Where were you five years ago? Where were you 10 years ago? Where were you 20 years ago? You were were chasing down every little fleeting pleasure. You, You were living a life that was just chasing one thrill, one fleeting thrill after the next, chasing girls, chasing guys, chasing money, chasing status, chasing popularity, chasing cars, chasing houses, chasing vacations, living your life for nothing, wasting it, battered, ruined, in trouble and shame, with no spiritual life in you, no hope that transcends death, Now look what God has done. Look what God, look around. Look what God has done. What, seriously, what are you doing here? You are here and we are here together. Sitting in the Pfeiffer Center in Williamstown, New Jersey, a church gathered under the word of God about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, knowing what it means knowing the hope of it knowing the glory of it knowing the the confidence and the peace and the rest of it knowing that that when all of this is done what we have to look forward to is glory and joy and 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 pleasures beyond our imagination in the presence of god why how did you get here you just got here because god looked upon you and said i am going to be gracious to that one and i'm going to apply The blood of my son Jesus Christ. And I'm going to give them life. And he breathed life into you by his spirit. That's the only reason you're here. That's the only reason why we're here. Look at how gracious he is. Look at how good his word is to us. That he would come and speak his word. And by that word give spiritual life. That we would then gather as his people and sit under his word and week by week be given grace to understand it and apply it to our own lives and be comforted by it and enjoy it and celebrate it and know his nearness to us when we are filled with grief and have hope for glory. Make no mistake, we we gather each each week under the word and there is a sense in which it cuts us. There is a sense in which it wounds us, but more than that, we gather because we know it's that same word that binds us up, that nourishes us, that strengthens us, that assures us of God's love and of redemption because, of, because in the word we see Christ. And in that final paragraph, the people commit themselves to celebrating the Feast of Booze, and God's word comes to them and, and calls them to remember. That word, it calls them to remember. The Feast of Booths was an annual feast that commemorated Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And here's the, here's the interesting thing about it. The, the, the Feast of Booths, you can just think, you can just put in that word, tent, or tents. They're tents. They have to make tents for themselves. In that Feast of Booths, what they do is they make tents and they go live in them. And the idea is that they're supposed to remember Israel's wanderings in the wilderness. And look, there are two things that they're supposed to remember. When they remember the wanderings in the wilderness, it's going to cut and it's going to, and it's going to bind up. It cuts because they remember that the reason that they were in the wilderness 40 years was because why? Because they were disobedient to the Lord. Because they, did, they, they, they didn't obey the Lord. But that Feast of Booths is also meant to commemorate the fact that God through the wilderness was with them that he was faithful, that he sustained them, that he preserved them, and that ultimately he delivered them into the promised land That he kept his promises. And now, brothers and sisters, God's word comes to us and God commands us by his word to come and remember at the table. To come to the table and remember the good word that was spoken to us. And what is that word? It's going to do both things. It's going to cut And it's going to bind us up. What was that word? It was the word that we are guilty. That we are sinful beyond measure, broken beyond fixing, and unrighteous before the holy eyes of God. That we stand justly condemned before him But the bread broken. The cup poured out speaks to us a good word, doesn't it? A good word, a gracious word, a merciful word, a powerful word. That God in Christ has done everything to redeem us. That He has done everything to reconcile us and to restore us to right relationship with him. But you know, when Jesus begins his public ministry, he says, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That word gospel, you know, it's literally good news. It's Jesus coming into the world. The Word Incarnate, who's come to speak to us—a good word, a gracious word, a kind word, a word of salvation—that those who are lost in the depths of their sin can find salvation, can find a right standing with God by faith. He comes into the Word. He comes into the, word, the uh, into the world. The Word of God Incarnate, the Word made flesh. And that man goes to a cross, and that man is centered on God's word to the very end. Even on the cross, he is crying out God's word. He is humbled beneath God's will in the garden, and then crying out the best word. And literally, it is one word in the Greek: Tetelestai. It is finished. On the cross, all our sins were paid for, and by his resurrection, he put away the death we deserve to die. And when you see that word, brothers and sisters, when you see, when you hear, when God comes to you and you hear him speak that word to you, that word of compassion and grace and kindness, when you hear him come to you and say, because of my son, because of all that he has done, you are mine and I am yours and nothing can ever change that. That's when his word becomes so precious to you, so beautiful to you that you come to it with eagerness, attentiveness, humility, reverence. And you don't obey. You don't obey out of a sense of duty. You come to the Lord who has spoken this word, and you come to him and you say, Lord, command me. You are good. Your word is good. Command me. Tell me what to do. We are zealous for God's word because it is such a good word. Nehemiah and Ezra built their lives on it. Adoniram Judson treasured it. You can, there's countless stories of others who are, who have given their lives just to, to possess it, to have it. So let's take our cues from God's people here in verse 18. I'll close with this. You see in verse 18, it says that they gave themselves day by day to sitting beneath the good word of God. And as we do, he will be faithful to complete his work in and through us. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word and pray uh, that our lives indeed would be centered upon it, that it would um, shape us. Uh, We know that in your word is life. So we pray that you would sanctify us by the truth, Lord. Your word is truth. Bless us now as we come to the table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.